morning, and um, we're at the point where we're going to turn to our Bibles uh, for our scripture reading this morning uh, from John chapter 5. Straighten this thing up so that I'm not just looking at one angle of the place. Um, So we turn to the book of books, the book of God, and we read from John chapter 5. Now, before we read this, just let me say that the pas- this passage is uh, the continuation of a discussion between Jesus and the Jews, the Jewish rulers. Um, and that discussion came on the back of uh, the miracle where he healed the man who was the invalid at the pool. And, and at that point when he had when he'd healed him, he made, the, he made this statement that... Uh, In verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. The Jews were very unhappy with him saying that, because they cottoned on to exactly what the implication of that was. They knew exactly what he meant when he said that, that he was putting himself on equality with God. That's down at verse number 16. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they're very unhappy. And the, the discussion therefore starts round about this, this point. And, and that's really where we now pick it up uh, at verse number 30. So let's read from verse number 30. Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I I receive is from man, But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. 
For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Amen. May God's word uh, touch our hearts uh, this morning. So what we're going to look at today seems quite a complicated reading. Uh, There's a bit of a symmetry to the whole thing uh, that I hope becomes clear. Um, We're going to see, first of all, that there are certain witnesses that substantiate the deity of Christ as he continues this discussion with, with the people. And then secondly, we're going to see that Christ actually is the judge of the reaction and response and the attitude of, of these people. And rather than being in the dock, rather than being on the defensive, rather than having to answer the questions that are posed to him by these people, he turns that round to them and he in turn critiques them and analyzes their attitude of heart. So really what we're looking at here is this whole idea of the witnesses and the judge. That kind of sums up, I think, this this section. So, of course, that's kind of courtroom language, uh, isn't it? And and courtrooms, of course, are serious places. Um, There can be serious allegations that are made in courtrooms, and there can be potentially serious consequences because of verdicts that are reached. And that, that really is the kind of tone that uh, is taken up here in this passage. It's pretty forthright. It's, uh, it's serious. It's, uh, it's sober stuff. And that's the way that we, re- we really should be approaching this. So there are five witnesses that, if you like, Christ calls you know, to defend uh, his position. They're brought in one at a time, and they all have something that they have to say uh, really to substantiate his allegation that God is his father, despite what he's having to take as flack uh, from the Jews. So the first witness that he brings in is himself. You know, and this is what we learned last week. But he, he, he kind of uh, makes the point again um, in verse number 30. He says, My judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says, let's be clear. Jesus affirms, and he doesn't back down from his statement. He doesn't say, sorry, uh, I think you misunderstood me. You're right enough. No, he, he sticks to his guns and he affirms the fact that God is his father and that his own testimony of this is valid. And it's valid because his will is completely aligned to God. It's a just statement in courtroom terms. Basically what Jesus is saying is this is the truth. It's the whole truth. And it's nothing but the truth. And that is what I am saying. And I stick by it. And my testimony is true. But in verse number 31, he picks up on the fact of what Jewish law would say. And what Jewish law says, that in a courtroom situation, the testimony of one person is not sufficient. And we can all understand that, of course. One person's word, one person's testimony is not sufficient. And so Jesus says, I have other testimonies as well, other witnesses that I can bring here. 
And then the next one that he brings in is verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me. He brings in John the Baptist. And he said, let's, let's hear what he has to say about this. What is his testimony as far as this account is concerned? Well, of course, the Jews did question him personally. If you go back to chapter 1, you will see that. Verse number 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And John was pretty clear about this. He said, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. You know, I'm the one who's come to introduce him. Uh, I'm not worthy to you know, stoop down and unfasten his sandals. Uh, he's greater than me. I'm not the one, but he is to come. And then his testimony is very clear down in verse number 29 when he says, pointing to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 30, this is he. Very clear in what he has to say. And this is not open to kind of dispute or misinterpretation. Clear as crystal, the testimony that John gives about the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the points are really stacking up now as far as the evidence that Jesus is presenting. And what he says is this, at this, at this particular stage, um, and we're back in chapter 5, of course, uh, at this point. What he says, you know, I don't, I, I don't need to have testimony that comes from man, verse 34. But I say this, I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, he's really saying this, that if you believe in me, you'll be saved. And what an important perspective that is for us to have. To realize that, you know, we're in trouble. We're in danger. There is a problem. And Jesus is teaching us about who he is so that we could be saved. Now, it's important for us always to make this point that salvation is at the very center of the Bible's message. You know, people ask the question, what, what must I do to be saved? It's, it's belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us that. It's whoever calls upon the name of the Lord that will be saved. And, and at times we don't think about our spiritual predicament uh, before God. Christ is very clear on this. I say these things to you so that you could be saved and, and rescued. And it's a wonderful thing, of course, to, have, to experience the salvation of God. Now, John was very popular for a while with, the, with, with not just the population in general, but with the Jewish leaders. And they kind of basked for a wee bit in, uh, in his popularity. Uh, he was this burning, shining light that appeared a bit like a, a firecracker in the wilderness. And the, the population is drawn to him. And there's a degree of excitement and uh, interest in the things of God. And uh, he then starts to speak directly to these leaders and expose them. And they're not too happy when he begins to say, you know, you brood of vipers. You know, who warned you to escape from the wrath 
uh, to come in. And the popularity of John dwindled a little bit at that point, and eventually he loses his life. Um, it's interesting that he's described here as being like a burning and a shining light. Now, he shone in the sense that he shone a path on Christ, and he revealed Christ. He burned in a sense that that was the cost to John. You know, he burned up in six months' time. You know, and there, was, there is a cost to shining a light and standing for God. Not just a shining light, but a burning and a shining light. And that's maybe a lesson for many of us as well. If we get involved in the things of God, there will, there will always be a cost that we will have to pay uh, for that. But the attitude of the people here, it reminds me a little bit about the parable of the sower. You know, there was a period of time where they were very happy uh, with John, you know, and they were, they, were, they were absolutely happy with what he said, but that changed quick, quickly. Remember the sower, the sower that put the seed in the, the, the shallow soil, springs up, it appears that there's a response that is genuine, and yet after a period of time, it all frazzles up, whether there's, whether there's a way, there's no depth, there's no reality, there's no genuineness there. And that's a kind of warning to all of us that there has to be a real depth to what we believe in. That uh, these people, if you looked at them a few months back, you would have thought, oh, there's something there. They're taking sides. They're standing shoulder to shoulder with John. But that changed very quickly. And for us, perseverance, continuity, going on, you know, consistency, that is the test of genuine faith in Christ when difficult times come or when you have to address the big issues. And that wasn't there um, as far as, as John's witness. Witness number three is now called in. And witness number three, we see at verse number 36. And he says there that there is a testimony that is even greater than that of John's testimony. And that testimony is the work that the Father has given me to accomplish. Of course, we've met this before in, in John's Gospel, all the way through these seven signs that are allocated and chosen. The signs that point very clearly to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why he, he uh, takes them, and he selects them, and he presents them. And so, I mean, this is an encouraging thing for Christians, because we, we, we look at the evidences of Christ's deity. And we see this all stacking up. I mean, what other way could we possibly interpret the miracles that Jesus performs? Feeding the 5,000, healing this man, changing the water into wine, raising Lazarus from the dead, and so forth and so on. Is that just all kind of smoke and mirrors? Is it some kind of trick, sleight of hand? Of course it's not. Nobody could do these things unless God was with them. That's what Nicodemus said. This is God who is able to perform these things, and they're recorded so that we can have confidence in these things, so that we can have complete confidence in what is recorded in Scripture about the Lord Jesus Christ and his works, which are a strong and powerful testimony. Testimony number four, you know, there's one after another, uh, is now down at verse number 37 where he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now, there is a sense in which the Father bears witness 
you know, in many ways, he bears witness through the works that he gave the Son to accomplish. He, he is the author of the Scriptures, which are going to be mentioned as number five witness. He pervades everything in addition to speaking from heaven on a number of occasions. You know, at the Mount of Transfiguration, at the baptism of Christ, this is my Son. He gives witness to that, as well as through the works and through the Scripture themselves. And so we, 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 we get all of these things building up as a strong and convincing body of evidence to the point that the Lord Jesus is making. My Father's working. I am working. I am on equality with God. And then the final one that he gives here is uh, at verse 39, where he says this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The sacred writings, from beginning to end, they bear witness about Christ. Now, there, there is something actually quite dangerous in what he's now about to say about the, the viewpoint of, of the Jewish uh, rulers, and it's this. These, these men respected the Scriptures. In fact, they venerated the sacred writings. They spent their life on these things. They were experts in the law. You know, they, they knew it back to front. They could quote it at length. They taught it. They memorized it. And at times, they even enforced it. Their whole life was spent dedication to the scriptures of God. And yet, despite that being the case, they missed the main point. And the main point was the identity of Christ and the person of Christ. Now that seems remarkable. And, and it's a real flashing light, really, isn't it, for all of us? We can be involved in the scriptures. We might read the Bible. We might read about the Bible in books. We come here, we listen to sermons. And yet it is possible that we can almost substitute the Bible instead of Christ himself. And we can miss Christ at times for the scripture. And there are people who worship the book rather than worshiping the God that the book tells us about. And that is a big error. And, and in our day and age, you know, there are academics and there are theologians and there are preachers and there are pastors and ministers and there are ordinary people who like the book and who are interested in the book and they know the book but they don't know Christ. And that is a very important distinction that we need to make. And we need to, we need to be serious with ourselves, actually, about this. You search the Scriptures, and you, and you can just imagine Christ looking them in the eye. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But they are the very Scriptures that speak about me, and you're refusing me, and you're refusing me. So, as we come to read the Bible, we need to learn to look for Christ in the Scriptures. That, in fact, as we heard announced earlier, is the whole title of this new series we're doing on Sunday evenings, starting tonight. Christ in the Old Testament. 
Look at, look at what it says towards the end of our passage here in chapter 5, where it talks about the writings of Moses. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how then will you believe in, in my words? They thought that in searching the scriptures, they had eternal life. Eternal life's a wonderful thing. I think sometimes we get um, a false and a skewed idea about this. Some people will say, and I can understand, you know, when I go and visit some care homes, you know, and some people say, you know, I've had a good innings, you know, why would I want to live forever? You know, why would I want to go on and on? You know, I've had enough. You know, and we think, well, would I want to have eternal life? I don't think, and that's a curse more than a blessing. And we get really the wrong idea about that. Because what eternal life is, yes, there is the idea of, of quantity in that, but it's much, much more than that. It is living forever, but it's living forever in an environment of perfection, where, where God dwells, where the King is the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns over that territory, if you like, where there's no sickness, there's no depression, you know, there's no sorrow or despair or loss or pain. You know, there's no tragedy. There's no disaster. You know, everything, and, and it's not just defined in what is not there. It is defined in what is there. Christ is there. The personification of justice and of love and of fulfillment and of faithfulness and the glory of God. It's about quality, not just quantity when we think about eternal life. And, and they searched these scriptures because they thought that in the very search of them, they could obtain eternal life. Jesus says, it's coming to me that you have eternal life. That you shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. And that is what is held out to us. That is what it means to be saved. It is to have to be the possessor of eternal life, which, by the way, starts now. The quality of life which involves the sense of peace with God and forgiveness and having a conscience that's cleansed and knowing God as your Father and having all these promises and the hope of glory all starts now. That's all part and parcel of what it means to have eternal life and then you step over that line between physical life and the great eternity. And you, you have that eternal life in the presence of God. And it's coming to Christ that we have that. So what he now does at this stage is uh, things change. Uh, the five witnesses have been brought in. point is made pretty clearly. And uh, evidence is overwhelming. But the tone now changes. And what the Lord Jesus does now is he, he goes on the kind of offensive a little bit. And he, he begins to critique and, and judge in the sense that he gives his assessment of the attitudes of, of these people. So what does he say? And uh, this is the next slide, actually. Uh, there's a bit of a symmetry here. There, there were five witnesses he has a five-fold critique of them. So let's just point them out to you. Uh, first of all, at verse number 38, where he says, 
you do not believe. Secondly, at verse number 40, you refuse to come to me. Thirdly, at verse number 42, you do not have the love of God within you. Number four is at verse 43, you do not receive me. And finally, the fifth one um, is down at verse 44. You receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from God. So what a devastating judgment from the bench, so to speak. Justice is being served. And that's, of course, what the Lord Jesus said at verse number 30. My judgment is just. Here is is justice. And we need to have the searching words of Christ to challenge us as we think about them today. So let's just ask ourselves a few questions as we bring this to a close, as we think about what Christ said here in his critique of them. I mean, is it possible that in spite of all the evidence to the truth of the gospel, all the evidence to the truth of Christ being the Son of God, that I can still refuse to believe the gospel. You know, it's possible that people don't believe not because of evidence, but they they believe because of other things. Basically because they don't want to believe. So I ask myself, is it possible, despite the evidence that I still don't believe. Secondly, am I refusing to come to Christ? Christ invites us all. It's a wonderful thing. You know, come to me. I'll give you rest. Everything's ready. Come for everything's ready here. And I stand back and I don't take that step and I don't walk towards Christ and I don't want to be welcomed. Is the love of God in me? There might be lots of things in me. Sense of anger at times. Disappointment. Maybe emptiness. The love of God in me. You know, the sense that, that God shows his compassion to me and he's merciful to me and his care. And I've got that sense within my life that, that God loves me. And that changes the way I think about things, the love of God. And what about receiving Christ? It's almost different from coming to Christ. But it's really saying the same thing. Receiving Him, welcoming Christ, embracing Christ, wanting Christ to be here, not at arm's length, but but receiving Him. As John 1 says, because as many as received him, he gave them the right to be the sons of God. And finally, what what, what is more important to me? People and what they think. Friends and the pressure that they bring for me to conform. Or is it God's approval and and what God thinks about me? How, How can we believe? if the most important thing is receiving glory from one another, 
and not seeking the glory that only comes from God. And so, you know, like them this morning for us to, uh, we, we listen to Christ and uh, we look at him and, and what, do we, what do we conclude? That he is the son of God and if we believe that, of course, that has implications. It has to be. You can't just leave a statement like that hanging in the air that goes nowhere. If I really do believe that, that has to have implications in my life. And that should involve the worship of Christ and the confession of Christ, that I stand by my belief. But worship is more than words, of course. Worship is taking his teaching seriously, following through on that, having confidence in his words and holding on to that. And it's experiencing the love of God in his heart. Or, or to, to quote one of uh, the Bible teachers from another generation who said, if Jesus Christ is God and, and died for me, then there really is no sacrifice that should be too great for me to make for him. Witnesses and the judge. Now shall we pray? Lord, thank you that we've been face to face with the teaching of Christ once more. So easy to get just carried along with all the things that happen in everyday life, but to come to your word, uh, to again hear all these witnesses one after another build up a body of evidence to the truth of who the Lord Jesus is and what the implications of that must be for us. And so, Lord, we, we know that uh, a light is being shine upon, shone upon us this morning as well. Christ is very straight with us as far as our response. Lord, may, may the love of God dwell in all our hearts. Lord, thank you for that great expression, the full expression of your love at Calvary. And Christ gave himself for us. And may the love of God dwell in all our hearts today as we receive and welcome Christ. So Lord, we pray for everyone here, for the children as well, that the words of Christ might truly live in us as we ask in his name. Amen.